if you find uh, Joshua chapter 7, we'll read the... Um, sorry, not chapter 7, chapter 6. I'm ahead of myself there. Chapter 6. We'll read the whole chapter. Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry seven trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word, until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go to his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord, and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who belong to her, in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city 
and everything in it. But they put the silver and gold and the article of articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Right, okay, well, uh, let's uh, sort of take it section by 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 section. In, in verse 1, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. So he, here's Jericho, all defences up. And, uh, and of course this is a, a, a real picture of spiritual warfare. Remember throughout this series I've been saying that Joshua is really the Old Testament counterpart to Ephesians. And uh, I've said many, many times that the way to picture the Old and the New Testaments in some ways is to picture like the New Testament is the script but the Old Testament is the movie and, and, and that you see New Testament doctrine acted out in history. And uh, so the spiritual warfare that the letter to Ephesians homes in on, we really see acted out here in the Old Testament. And uh, really sort of like get, get this picture of, 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 of like Satan is a mountain here to be moved. There's an obstacle, there's something in the way of what God wants. It's satanic, it has to be got out of the way. And uh, you'll remember that uh, Jesus taught that... Um, in likening Satan to a strong man who's got goods that you want to get. Um, Jesus taught that, um, that, that, that first you have to bind the strong man, then you plunder his goods. You've got to deal with the strong man first. You can't go straight for what he's got because the strong man is standing in the way. He's going to fight you know, to keep what's his. And so therefore the strong man has to be dealt with first. And of course this Jesus did when he died on the cross. And if you go to Colossians 2, um, as obviously we mustn't think that Ephesians is the only New Testament book that deals with spiritual warfare, but if you find Colossians and chapter 2, um, and verse 13, <coughs> and uh, Paul says this, he says, When you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that, um, and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. Um, one of the things that the Romans did is if they crucified somebody, there was a, a plaque nailed to the top of their cross and it, it showed the crime that they were dying for. You know, so if they were a murderer, they'd have murder up there, or if they were insurrectionists, it'd be insurrection, thief, thief, whatever it was. And of course, it's incredibly symbolic that when Jesus died, um, Pilate couldn't think of anything to put on the, on the cross because he knew that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. And uh, he put up there, Jesus, King of the Jews. And, uh, you know, because of course there were no charges against Jesus. And of course the point is, all the charges against us, it was all our sins that were nailed to that cross. So, you know, sort of like, you know, Jesus the King of the Jews, that, that sign was really, that was your sins and my sins, it was all there. And uh, because that's been dealt with, Satan has no more hold over us. And, um, and Paul goes on, he says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And, uh, and I mean, though, though human eyes couldn't see it, the moment that Jesus died on the cross, I mean, Satan was just completely done for. I mean, he, he was made a, a, a public spectacle. Or to put it more bluntly, you know, Jesus made an absolute idiot out of him. Because remember that, that throughout human history, um, you know, for 4,000 years prior to this moment of Jesus dying on the cross, Satan had been desperately trying either to one, 
prevent Jesus being born, or two, once Jesus was born, to try and kill him. And now, you know, sort of like, you know, two, 4,000 years on in his attempt, at last, Satan manages to do what he wanted to do. He killed Jesus. And in the very act of killing Jesus, he sealed his own fate, because it was the moment that Jesus died that Satan was completely undone. And because our sins were dealt with, Satan lost any hold that he had over us. And so that, that's why, you know, he was made a, a public spectacle of. He looked an absolute blithering idiot, which is exactly what he is, in the sense that Satan is so totally outwitted by God every time that he looks literally a dimwit by comparison. Because, of course, the point is, however uh, powerful Satan's intellect and mental prowess is, and he's far cleverer than us, but regardless of how clever he is compared to us, compared to the Lord, he's a thoroughgoing dunce. And the cross proved it beyond all doubt at all. God outwits Satan at every turn. And so therefore the strong man has been dealt with, therefore his goods can be plundered. In this instance us, our salvation. But the picture that we've got here is that you've got Jericho, okay, is the prize, so that Israel are coming into the promised land and God has said, look, it's all yours, go in and take it. So we've got the prize or the goods, which is Jericho. That belongs to Israel. I mean, Israel is going to offer all of it to God as the first fruits, but nevertheless, God is giving it to Israel. So there you've got the goods. But there's something in the way. There's something that stands between Israel and Jericho. And it's just a small matter of these walls. And can you see, it's the walls of Jericho that represent a demonic hold that has to be broken before what God has promised can be actualized in the lives of God's people. So the picture we've got here is that what belongs to Israel, to God's people, is clear. It's been promised. Jericho does. But the walls of Jericho are standing, they can't get to Jericho because of the walls. And of course the whole point about the battle of Jericho, the focus of the attack is not Jericho, the focus of the attack is the walls. Once the walls fell it was a technicality of the army going in and beating up the, the Jerichoites or whatever they were called. Right. The walls were the problem, the walls were what had to be dealt with. And that was a, a picture of, of a satanic holding power that had to be broken. Or in the words of the New Testament, as we'll be seeing later, the idea of strongholds that had to be pulled down. The walls were the stronghold. And of course, what we've got here in the Battle of Jericho is a, a picture of spiritual warfare, but primarily its aspect of prayer and faith. Now, we must, at this point, remind ourselves and, and, and at every point in our you know, understanding and practice of spiritual warfare, we must always go back to the point I'm going to go back to now, because it's absolutely crucial, and we'll, be, we'll carry on seeing it all the way through, that although here we've got the Battle of Jericho, spiritual warfare, okay, remember, immediately prior to this, last week, we saw Joshua on his face before the Lord being broken. Prior to that, what had happened to Israel? in the plains of Jericho, having come over um, the sea, having come over the Jordan. What was it that happened to them? They were circumcised. And that circumcision, the cutting away of the flesh, again, a picture of being broken, a picture of the cross doing its work in delivering from the sinful nature and bringing forth the fruit of the life of Jesus within us. And so we've got to all the time keep reminding ourselves that you can never, when we talk about prayer and faith, okay, in regards to spiritual warfare, we must make sure that we never separate it from the fundamental life of holiness. So again, to remember the point that we can only expect to experience our authority over Satan to the extent that we are living under the authority of the Lord in our own lives. Obviously, we're not talking sinlessness. We're talking when we do sin, though, we put that right. We do repent. But we've got to remember the whole time, 
you know, that sort of, you know, in regards to spiritual warfare, coming against Satan here and coming against demons there and coming against this, that and the other. Well, okay, that's great, but if it's out of the context of a life of ongoing discipleship, it's not going to happen. And the great danger of, well, not a great danger, but the thing is that someone could say, listen to tonight's study on spiritual warfare, homing in on the prayer and faith bit, and think that, oh, wow, yeah, that, that's it. This is the real crunch point. Actually, it's not. The real crunch point is everything that's gone before. It's a life of holiness. It's discipleship. This spiritual warfare is a fruit of being a disciple. So we've all the time got to keep that in context. But nevertheless, you know, we're still going to be homing in tonight on the aspect of, of kind of like the prayer and, uh, and faith in regards to our spiritual warfare against Satan. If you go to, to, to Daniel, and uh, we'll be going to Daniel a couple of times tonight. Um, obviously at this point I refer you to the, you know, obviously we did the... Um, the demonology series when we went into to this in in great detail but um if you find daniel chapter 10 and verse 12 and uh, this is our little what i've always called our peak behind the cosmic curtain um now this is what's happening is that daniel has prayed and and, and he's asked the lord to show him something and he's then fasted for 21 days. Then an angel appears to him and, and gives him the answer to the prayer, the info he wanted. So this is the angel talking to Daniel. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. But can you see the point? Daniel prayed, and the answer was, as it were, dispatched in the shape of this angel. So the goods... The, 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 the thing that Daniel was praying for was there. It was there for the taking. But for 21 days, this angel was blocked by demonic spirits. But the fact that Daniel kept praying meant that the satanic blockage was dealt with and the answer to the prayer got through. Again, can you see that same principle there? That prayer and faith acts in breaking the demonic stronghold. And it's the demonic stronghold that has to be broken before you get the answer to whatever the prayer is. Uh, it, hence, to get to Jericho, they had to deal with the walls. And so, what we've got here is what, um, you know, in the demonology series, I, 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 I termed um, kind of like a triangularity of prayer. That when it comes to intercession, there's a triangle. There are three aspects to it. It doesn't mean that you've got to actually be wording it, all three aspects but prayer automatically covers them. And of course the point is that prayer is one, to God. Secondly, it's for something. But thirdly, it's against Satan. Because Satan, being the prince of this world, holds what one's praying for. You see what I mean? He's the controlling power behind it until that power is broken and by the power of prayer and the Spirit of God that hold is broken. Now in verse 2 in Joshua, we have this, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Now again, we're reminded here, Joshua, uh, sorry, Jericho already belonged to Israel. It belonged to Israel by God's promise. The land of Canaan, it means the land of promise. It was a gift from God to Israel. All they had to do was to go in and take what was already theirs. All right. And uh, so therefore, from one point of view, the battle was already over. It belonged to them. And of course, what faith, and in this context, prayer is doing? 
faith and prayer takes God at his word in regards to what he's promised. And even though what is promised clearly isn't happening yet, I mean, Jericho, all right, here's Joshua and Israel looking on Jericho, and there's Jericho nicely tucked up, safe and sound behind these walls. And God says, see, I've given it to you. Now, from one point of view, they might have looked and said, uh, well, Lord, small matter of those walls, actually. But from God's point of view, it's as good as done. Because if God is going to do something, it really is as good as done. And faith simply prays it through until it is done. And it's the faith and it's the prayer that breaks the demonic stronghold and, as it were, makes it done, actualizes what God has promised. And so, in regards to it, when God says to Joshua, look, I've given it to you, he's saying to Joshua, look at this from my point of view. Look at this through the eyes of faith. To your natural eyes, Jericho isn't given to you at all. You know, they're safe and sound, you can't get to them. But the truth of the matter is, I've given them to you. And so Joshua now has to look through the eyes of faith. Uh, do you remember in um, an earlier talk, uh, we, we saw the story of Elisha, when he kept informing uh, the Israeli king, when the, uh, who, I can't remember who it was, the Philistines possibly, uh, were going to keep attacking, and every time they attacked, uh, no, it was the Syrian army, every time they attacked, uh, Elijah had, uh, he, Elisha had told the, the Israeli king where to meet the attack, and eventually the, the king of the attacking army was convinced that he had a spy in his midst, and his general said to him, no, it's not a spy, it's Elisha, they've got a prophet, and uh, Elisha, you know, tell, tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedchamber. You know, that's why they keep knowing where to ward off our attacks before we even do attack. And so what happened was, is that the army was dispatched to capture Elisha. They, they found out where um, Elisha was in this little town. And one morning Elisha woke up and he had a young assistant with him. And this young assistant goes out and, uh, and, and sees this army surrounding the town. And he, he, he knew that this army had come, uh, you know, for Elisha. And uh, he was like, panic, panic, fret, fret, you know. And he went in and told Elisha. And Elisha just said, pray. He said, Lord, open the eyes of this young man. And the young man looked again, and he saw what Elisha was seeing all along. They could see this army surrounding them, but they could then see the army of the Lord of Hosts, the angels surrounding the human army. Now that is seeing through the eyes of faith. It's seeing things from God's point of view. Because remember, our natural eyes only see half the story. The half of the story our natural eyes see is true because the physical universe is a true universe, of course. But the bit we don't see is equally real. It's the invisible. It's the angelic universe. It's, it's, it's God. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual warfare. Now that we see through the eyes of faith, by believing what God has said. If you go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, actually see where where Paul says this quite quite blatantly. 2 Corinthians 5. And in verse 7, he just quite simply said, he's talking, the, the, the context here is that one day we're going to be in glory with glorified bodies. And, um, and Paul quite simply says, we live by faith, not by sight. And you can really sense in Paul, as he writes here, that his glorified body is virtually as real to him then as when he's actually going to get it. Because he was seeing it by faith. And so we live by faith and not by sight. Now, of course, that is the exact opposite to what the world says. And remember, the sinful nature equates to what Isaiah calls the sinful heart of unbelief. And unbelief says seeing is believing. But the way of the kingdom is the other way round. Believing is seeing. If you believe and act on what God has said is true, then eventually you will see it. And you'll see it because you're believing, because your faith and your praying will make it so. Thus saith Jean-Luc Picard, as it were, unquote. And so, hence, we walk by faith and not by sight. But if we do, it's not pie in the sky, 
Because if we do, our faith will become sight. That's the important thing to realise. So let's move on now to the actual way in which they were to now go about taking Jericho. Um, there they are, Jericho, with the walls up. But God has said, I've given it to you. You know, it's yours. It's done. You know, believe it. This, this whole thing is by faith. And, um, but, but it's, it's fascinating the way now that God has them proceed. And, and the way he has them proceed, I'm, I'm sure, gives us certain lessons that we need to learn. And, uh, and of course, the way that they were to do it was that every day for six days, they marched round it. Now, they weren't allowed to talk to each other. While they were walking round, there was no talking. There was a lot of trumpet blowing, but there was no talking. Okay. So, every day for six days, they just walked around the walls of Jericho without talking. Then, on the seventh day, they had to walk around it seven times. Again, not talking. Blowing the trumpets, but not talking. And then what was going to happen, at a certain point, Eli um, Joshua would tell them to shout, and when they shouted, the walls would come down. But what we've got to realise is that here's Jericho, they've got to take Jericho, the walls are in the way. Now then, just apply this, let's apply this to ourselves personally, for instance, by saying that all of us have Jerichos in our lives, don't we? We all know what it is to have things in our lives which are the equivalent, we know that we've got victory over them because Jesus has delivered from us from sin. In Romans, when Paul says, you know, do, do not any longer yield your members to sin, he means it. You know, it, it's ours. Victory over sin is there. It's a gift. It's ours. But of course, we all know that we've got Jerichos that are still standing strong in our lives. Okay. And so we can learn a lot now about how God goes about bringing us to the point where victory over them eventually comes. And so here they are, walking around their Jericho, and we all know our Jerichos. And uh, one could apply, obviously, less personally, but prayer burdens we have for other people, for the nation, for God to raise up, you know, the church. These, these are all Jerichos, all right? But, but, but we all know what it is to have Jerichos in, in our lives. And they're just walking around it again and again and again in complete silence all right so picture it the jericho in your life here's the jericho in their life they're just walking around it again and again and again and nothing is happening they can't even talk so they're without distraction they've got nothing to do but to think about this jericho that they're walking around now then this walking i put it to you brought them three realizations three three things really impressed themselves on all these jews as they're marching round and round jericho and the first is quite simply they're realizing how impossible it is they're realizing this is impossible there ain't no way that we can take jericho because those walls are too high and those walls are too strong and those walls are too well protected yeah God's given it to us that's all very well and good but it is impossible and that realization was coming through to them not just as a theory not just as some doctrine or some idea it was it, it was filtering down into every cell of their being they were confronted with the total impossibility of something that they knew they had to move forward in because God had told them to. So they had the command, they had what God wanted them to do. They knew the way forward as believers, they knew what was required of them, but they were realising it was utterly and totally beyond them to do anything about it at all. 
So walking around Jericho again and again and again, not even talking, they were realizing, one, it was impossible. And of course the thing for us, as I've just said, God has actually brought us complete potential deliverance from sin. God has called us to live impossible lives. God hasn't called us to live possible lives. He's called us to live lives which are impossible. And so therefore, for us, we mustn't be surprised if an element of our Christian life is just as it were walking round and round and round our lives realising just how impossible it is to live the Christian life. Because you know where you've got to go. You know what these Jerichos are. You know that there's this, that and the other. And you know that God is going to take you through them and you're going to come out the other side. But boy, you ain't got a clue how it's going to happen because it's impossible. And to a certain extent, it frightens the pants off of you because you've got to get, as it were, to the other side of that obstacle. But you can't move the obstacle. The obstacle is immovable as far as you're concerned. It is completely impossible. So that leads on to the second thing that they realise. And the second thing that they realise, and of course it's in the light of this complete and utter impossibility before them, is that they realise their own complete helplessness in the face of it. Now this is a completely logical progression. If something is impossible, you can't do it. Huh? That's what impossible is. That's what it means. I've often said that in actual fact there aren't degrees of impossibility. Sometimes people say, oh this is really impossible. Well no, something can't be really impossible. Something is possible or it's impossible. You can't have really impossible. And, 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 and we know that uh, it's impossible for us to live the Christian life. Therefore we're confronted with our complete helplessness. Now then, I'm sure that many a Jewish soldier here during this week of marching round Jericho went through a transition. And the transition was rather from, oh yeah, let's get in there, let's sort Jericho out, we got God's promises, yeah, let's get in there. A kind of a, a cockiness, a, a, a kind of a, a self-confident cockiness dressed up to look like faith. And now they're walking round Jericho, the story's changing. And they're not cocky anymore, they're realising, wow, this is this is beyond us and they're realizing their helplessness and that's vital for us there's no movement there's no going forward in any new area in in following the Lord outside of a fresh realization of our helplessness and that it's God who's going to do it that's vital it's the same with spiritual warfare you can't come up against Satan in your own strength waste of time it's impossible you're absolutely helpless so the third realisation, therefore, that comes to them is that when it is done, when this Jericho has fallen, because the thing is, the more, if you just realise the impossibility, that will increase your unbelief. But if your realisation of the impossibility leads you on to realise your own helplessness and humbles you, you'll actually discover that faith grows. And you'll then know that when it's happened, that when this Jericho has fallen, it will be clear that God has done it and all the glory will therefore go to him. And these are the three things that Israel are realising. It's impossible, we're helpless, when it happens it's going to be God doing it and there'll be no doubt about it and he'll get the glory, not us. This is 100% God working. And that's why we need to take a good look at our walls of Jericho. That it, it, exactly the same process um, work, works in us. And I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that, that sometimes there, there's even a, a need for a dying to our own faith. Because as I said earlier, there can be a self-confident kind of cockiness that is dressed up to look like faith but it is actually self-confidence but because we're Christians it's dressed up and it sounds and it looks because we use all, all, all the, the, the faith words 
but the reality of it, it's uh, you know, I mean, we we saw Peter last week, didn't we? You know, sort of like it was what he thought his great words of faith. I'll die for you, Lord. I mean, what words of faith? Wow! It was self-confident cockiness, and he had to come to that realization. And so, therefore, we need often a, a dying even to our own faith. And if you go to Luke, I, I want to show you Jesus actually teaching on 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 this very very idea. John. Sorry, Luke 17. If you find verse 5. Now look at this. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Well, that's good. That, that's a good prayer. Lord, increase our faith. Perfectly valid prayer. He replied, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Or you could translate that, You can say to your walls of Jericho, Fall down, and they will, if you have faith. But the thing to notice the disciples are viewing faith in terms of quantity. They're saying, Lord, increase our faith. Give us more faith, Lord. Jesus answers them along the lines of, no, it's not a question of more faith. It's not a question of quantity. Because you only need faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. You only need a tiny little amount. It's not a question of quantity. It's a question of quality and what Jesus is saying to them because of course when it comes to faith the size of a grain of mustard seed they already had that or they wouldn't have been following Jesus they're saying we've got a little bit of faith Lord increase it and Jesus is saying no 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 it's not a question of quantity it's quality what Jesus is saying no it's not a question of increasing your faith it's a question of changing it for something that is still faith but completely different to what you're talking about so that what Jesus is talking about isn't increasing faith, it's having a different kind of faith. And if you look at the first four verses, look at the context, because we're not here looking at miracles and blah, blah, blah. Look, from verse 1, the context. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. Uh, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea, blah, blah, blah. So watch yourselves. If your brother's sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. So the context of this Lord increase our faith is the life of holiness. That's the context. We're not talking about healing and raising the dead and stuff like that. The context is living the Christian life. Freedom from sin, all right, you know, sanctification, if you will. And the disciples are saying, Lord, increase our faith. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 look, it's not a question of quantity. It's a question of quality. It's a different kind of faith. And if you cross-reference this with Jesus' teaching, so he said a size of a grain of mustard seed. If you cross-reference this, with Jesus' teaching in John about the corn of wheat falling into the ground and dying. And as a result of that one seed dying, it brings forth something that is much bigger than itself. Then what you've got here is that I think Jesus is saying, no, it's not a question of you having more faith. Lord, increase my faith. No, it's not a question of your faith at all, Beresford. You must die to your faith your little grain of mustard seed faith, you've got to die to it. And as a result of dying to it, you're going to get a different type of faith. And of course, that faith that we get as a result of this dying is actually what Paul calls the faith of the Son of God himself. It's the faith of Jesus. It's divine faith. It's not us doing our believing thing. It's the faith that is generated in us through the life of the Holy Spirit within us. And if you go to um, Daniel again, and find chapter 4, 
going to read something about one of the major characters in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, we're talking about Israel going around and around the walls of Jericho, realising how impossible it is. God's promised it, but it's impossible. They're helpless, so when it happens, it's going to be God doing it, not them, and the glory will go to him. And so therefore Israel are kind of a dying even to their own faith. I mean, they're just giving up on it. And as they're giving up, realising that complete helplessness, then a, a different ki kind of faith comes through, you know, the faith of, of, of Jesus himself. And um, Daniel chapter 4, and uh, we'll, we'll start reading uh, from verse 29. And this, this is kind of... This sums up the very thing in Israel that God was countering with this walking round the walls. Now this is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon here. And uh, you know, remember Israel went into the Babylonian captivity and Nebuchadnezzar, he was the number one man. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now you'll find throughout the Bible that Babylon, and uh, you know Babylon was the capturer of God's people. Israel were taken into captivity by Babylon. You'll find that throughout the Bible that it represents a, a picture of the world. It represents a kind of a picture of, of man separated from God believing that he's complete in himself. It's arrogant, autonomous mankind saying no to God, we don't need you. Alright. So Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is a perfect picture, as it were, of the flesh, the sinful nature, as opposed to the spirit the life of the Spirit. And look what he says. He's looking at this, all this great, marvellous building around him. And he says, Is this not great Babylon that one I have built by my mighty power to the glory of my majesty? Now, can you see, that is the exact opposite to the realisation that Israel is coming into as they go around the walls of Jericho. They're realising that it is all of God, it's not of them at all, and therefore God will get the glory. Nebuchadnezzar is, this is what I have done by my mighty power to the glory of my majesty. And what you've got there is you've got what you could term self-will. You know, this is what I have done. You've got self-effort by my mighty power. And you've got self-glory to the glory of my majesty. Now that sums up the sinful nature. Whenever you've gone with the sinful nature rather than the new nature, those factors are there, aren't they? I, 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 me, me, me. And so therefore what Israel is doing is they're dying to these things. They're dying to self-will. This was one of the things that we saw last week Joshua had to learn. Uh, Jericho was God's baby, not his. This, this was God's idea. You know, it's so, so death to self-will. It's God who is at work in us, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You know, I mean, often, you know, sort of, I wouldn't have said this a few years ago, but my goodness, don't we even end up kidding ourselves that we decided to follow Jesus? Well, crumbs, we can only believe that until we get the realisation from the Bible that we, we, we wanted to follow Jesus because God gave us that desire. It wasn't our idea. It wasn't self-will. Everyone who's born again, John says, it's not by the will of man, it's by the will of God. 
Even our conversion wasn't our idea, it was God's idea. So there needs to be a crossing out of self-will. And then a crossing out of self-effort. You know, what we do. Because what we do is just of no use. It's only what the Lord does through us. And therefore, if it's the Lord doing it through us, well, there's no room, is there, for us to glory in what the Lord's doing in our own lives. Well, we can glory in the Lord doing it. We can boast in the Lord. But we can't glory in a way as if all, you know, is, is, aren't I wonderful all of a sudden? Because we're not wonderful. I mean, we're wonderful relative to being God's children. He loves us to bits. But what I mean is that, it, I mean, so, you know, when, when a new victory over sin comes, you know, I mean, what's the first thing that happens? There's, there's, I mean, in our rejoicing, we're confronted with a struggle with pride, aren't we? See, you know, there's somehow the idea that we contributed to it somehow. We didn't at all. And so, therefore, there needs to be this complete dying to what we see here in Nebuchadnezzar. This idea, you know, what I've done by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And uh, there, there just has to be a dying to that. And it's, it's all, um, you know, this is all, all, all tied up with, with, with the idea of spiritual warfare. Because obviously, only the Lord can bring the victory. It's not us. It's got to be the Lord through us. And so therefore, when it comes to spiritual warfare, it's got to be God's power. It can't be our, our power. It's got to be the armour of God that we're fighting Satan with, not our own armour. If you go back to 2 Corinthians and uh, find chapter 6, Two Corinthians chapter six. I'm just going to read um, four to seven. This is initially Paul talking about various hardships that he'd been through um, in regards to the ministry that God had called him to. Um, he he says rather as as servants of of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Uh, Paul Paul's got a problem in the Corinthian church with people who have come along claiming to be mighty teachers and apostles, and they're trying to push Paul out. All right, you know. And so Paul's saying, right, okay, you want credentials? <laughs> you want me to commend myself? Right, here are my credentials, right. He says, great endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments and riots. He's saying, look, you know, if you want the mark of an apostle, this is it, you know, all the persecution I get. But he goes, he says, sleepless nights, hard work, hunger. But then he goes on and he says, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Now there, Paul refers to the, the weapons that he's fighting with. And the weapons that he's fighting with they're the power of God. They're the weapons of righteousness. It's not his power, and it's certainly not his righteousness, because Paul knew he didn't have any. The only righteousness he had was the righteousness of Jesus that he'd received as a gift. If you go over to chapter 10 now, it's still in 2 Corinthians, but chapter 10. If you find verse 3, and he says, For, for though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The world fights each other. The world fights people. I mean, our fight in Ephesians, Paul says, not with flesh and blood. That's not our wrestling is with the demonic powers. Uh, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. It's, it's not guns and swords and atomic bombs and you know hand grenades and things like that. On the contrary, they have divine power they're the weapons we fight with divine power to demolish strongholds we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of god and we take every thought captive to make it obedient to christ but he says there look the weapons are our warfare they have divine power to demolish strongholds so he says look there's the jerichos all you know whatever jerichos that god is leading you up against at any one moment whether it's the Jerichos in your own life or Jerichos externally, 
prayer burdens you've got, praying for people's salvation, whatever it is. It says, there's the Jerichos, they're divine strong, they're, they're, they're strongholds, you pull them down with divine power. Not with human power. There is nothing human power can do to even get in the way of Satan, let alone pull down any of his strongholds. And so therefore, we've got to see how important it is to realise our helplessness, to know that it's only the Lord who can do this. And in Ephesians 6 verse 10, I'll just read it to you. There, you know, sort of like the, the big passage where Paul deals about the armour of God. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. When it comes to spiritual warfare, it has to be the Lord doing it through us. And so therefore, the Nebuchadnezzar in us, you know, the bit of us that, what I've done and my mighty power and the glory of my majesty, all right, the Nebuchadnezzar in us has to be dealt with. And of course you'll remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, don't you? The Lord struck him and uh, he ended up, you know, he, 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 he went completely mad and he ended up thinking he was a you know, cattle in a field eating grass. And he basically stayed there until he bowed down before the Lord and got converted. Which, praise the Lord, he did get converted. But can you see, the Lord has got to deal with the Nebuchadnezzar inside each one of us. And, uh, and that's got to happen in order for spiritual warfare to become effective. So again, we're seeing, you can't separate spiritual warfare from the life of holiness. You can't separate spiritual, you can't, you know, have a prayer and faith thing outside of living the day-to-day -day Christian life in faithful obedience to the Lord and in repentance when we are unfaithful, because unfaithful we will most surely be. You can never separate them. They, you know, sort of like the two have got to go together. But can you see that in regards to this, that what you've got is this marvellous picture of prayer and faith that as they were walking round the walls all right and there are times when you know sort of like there are things that you're praying for and uh, I'm, I'm okay when prayers are answered that's great but uh you know more problematically the prayers that aren't answered but we find that as, as you know as they're not being answered that that there's our chance to you know to come into the lord's faith you know we start to wilt but then we realise that, that you know that we're wilting, and then we go, "Oh Lord, is it Your will?" And, and you go, and if, if it proves it is God's will, you come back to it with a new zest, because you've died to your faith, and you've come into the Lord's faith, and there's a certainty there that just can't be shaken, you know. No matter, you know, even if it, even if it's something you've been praying for for, for twenty years and it hasn't happened yet, if you've got that faith of the Lord, you'll just keep walking around that Jericho until it falls. Other Jerichos you have seen fall. Others may be falling at the moment, but there are always others that you're still walking around. Well, keep walking. Keep praying. Keep believing. Because it's in the praying. It's in that faith that Satan's power is being broken. So we're back to my prayer triangle, that when it comes to intercession, that prayer is to God, for something and against Satan. It doesn't mean that every time you're interceding, you've all the time got to be, oh, I come against you, Satan. But, you know, I mean, there's, there's a time for verbalising that. You know, yes, I mean, there, it, it's, it's good to... But it doesn't mean that you have to actually go through every bit of that triangle. Every time you're praying, Satan is shaking in his boots. You know, whether you're uh, actually verbalising against him, nevertheless you're praying, and that prayer is demolishing his strongholds. And uh, so that's what we've got to keep doing. We've got to pray. We've got to have faith. We've got to, you know, believe and, and to see this, this spiritual warfare that God's called us to. Right, okay. Well, if eventually they keep going round and, of course, it, it falls. No problem. And uh, the, the time comes and Joshua says, shout. And they all shout and the walls come down. Just like that. Well, like that, like that. And it, it's as simple as that. Because when God does it, it happens. And, and the walls came down, so in they go, and they take Jericho. And that wasn't the problem. 
taking Jericho wasn't a problem. Once the, once the demonic stronghold has come down, once the satanic holding power has been dealt with, then you just go in and, and what it is is actualised. What you've, you've seen, as it were, in the heavenlies is now a reality in the earthlies, as it were. That's, that's how it works. And uh, so now, verses 22, 25, they, they, they go in and they, they get all the, um, the gold and the silver and uh, they bang it in the Lord's treasury as, um, as they've been told to do. Because this was the first fruits. This was the first city it all went to the Lord. Albert as well see next week there was a hiccup here and it was a very serious one. But nevertheless, by and large, Jericho, the first fruits, they destroyed everything and all the, the plunder for it they, they, they put in the Lord's treasury as the first fruits. And uh, the, the two spies are sent back in, you know, the two guys who had spied it out. They went to get Rahab, the prostitute, and her family because uh, they, they put the scarlet thread uh, outside of the window. So therefore they were protected. That scarlet thread, a picture of the blood of Jesus. And that was, that was she had her own personal Passover which of course when, when we get converted we all have our personal Passover you know the angel of death passes over us and will never touch us again you know because we're covered by the blood and so there you know sort of like she gets her own Passover and she's, she's delivered from God's judgment or everything around her is being destroyed but she's being delivered she's rescued because she's under the blood of Jesus and that's the same with us human life is going to, well, that, this whole universe is going to end up under the fire of God's judgment, but not us, because we've all had our own little Passover, you know, the blood of Jesus, we're saved. And uh, then in verse 26 you get this, actually read it, at that time Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. And um, and you know, so so because it was kind of made an example of, and Jericho, you know, it, it became, you know, sort of like the ultimate picture, as it were, of a demonic, you know, sort of like hold, and and, and God's curse was pronounced against anyone who rebuilt it, and of course this raises the question that at a time like this, when such a great victory, you know, of God's people and the leader Joshua pronounces a curse against Jericho you would have thought that people would have known better, wouldn't you? But it doesn't change the fact that some years later, uh, someone did rebuild Jericho. If, if you go to 1 Kings chapter 14, well, uh, chapter 16, we'll actually see it. And... Uh, One Kings. This is in the immediate lead up to the ministry of Elijah, and it's kind of symptomatic of just how bad think things had got uh, by the time Elijah came, came on the scene. And one Corinthians sixteen and fine verse thirty four. In Ahab's time, and uh, Ahab was the king that, that that Elijah came up against. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Joshua had said, anyone who rebuilds Jericho is going to cost them their oldest son and their youngest son. Now, here is rebellion. This guy, he starts building Jericho, all right? He lays the foundations of Jericho, and his oldest son dies. Does it deter him? No, he keeps going, and the finishing touches, he puts the gates up, because they went up last, and his youngest son dies. Incredible, isn't it? That's rebellion. That's what you and I have been rescued from. That's what we were like. And the only reason we're not like it now is not because we found a little bit of goodness and decided to trust in Jesus. You know, that somehow we, rather than all those other sinners out there, we had it in our hearts to want to seek the Lord at some point. No, 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 no. We are totally no different to everyone else out there. The Lord decided to put that desire in you or you wouldn't have had it. 
this Hile of Bethel, that's what we're like. And, and, and it's, it's God who, who changes a man so that his desires change. And uh, anyway, so that was the, the, the curse of Jericho. And then the last verse, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. And uh, here we have that vindication of Joshua's leadership. So, you know, we really see that, um, you know, that God has uh, really put his seal. If anyone had any doubts that Joshua was Moses, you know, kind of like replacement, this, this dispelled it. And isn't it marvellous the way that prior to this, remember Joshua had ended up on his knees before the Lord, on his own with the Lord, totally humbled in the dust. Learning that lesson, he was just a pleb, nothing special about him at all. Nothing, not, he was just one of the lads, and that, that's true. Humbled in the dust. And because of that, now he's exalted, isn't he? And his fame spreads throughout Israel. Not that we must for one moment ever believe that it's good to be, have fame, but can you see, he who humbles himself will be exalted. But had Joshua exalted himself, God would have humbled him. And, and just see the way that the Lord here honours him, uh, you know, sort of like as Joshua's responded and, and humbled himself and been submissive to the Lord. Well, then the Lord is giving him great authority in Israel and uh, is, is really honouring him so that everyone is in no doubt at all that um, Joshua is God's man at that particular time for leadership. And... Um, in ending tonight, we'll, we'll, we'll just go back to where we started about this plundering the, the strong man. Because what we're talking about tonight is um, yeah, the whole thing is, is us breaking Satan's power, taking what God has given us and, and demolishing, pulling down Satan's strongholds. And, uh, I mean... Jesus has already bound the strong man. I mean, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, I mean, spiritual warfare is almost a technicality after that. And if you go to Luke 11, and I want to re remind you of one of the things that we saw earlier on in the series. And you'll remember that when, um, when the spies went into Jericho, um, were chatting with Rahab, they discovered that the truth was that Jericho and the inhabitants of Canaan had been living in absolute terror of Israel ever since they crossed the Red Sea 41 years earlier. And we saw, didn't we, that the truth of the matter is that Satan is far more scared of us than we can ever be of him. Even when Israel was in defeat in the wilderness, the inhabitants of Canaan were terrified because they knew the moment Israel got there, they were dead. And that's the same with us, isn't it? Even if, even if a Christian is not being faithful to the Lord and is maybe even out of fellowship, Satan is terrified at the thought of them getting back with the Lord again. And, uh, you know, so, so, so Satan is actually terrified of us. And a lot of Christians make far too much of Satan. I mean, we don't want to minimise him. He's a roaring lion and we're told to beware of him. Yes, I mean, we must be vigilant. But we've got to keep Satan in context. I mean, so many Christians, they talk as if Satan is the opposite of God. I mean, God has no opposite. Because if something is opposite to something else, it's equal to it. God has no opposite. I mean, Satan is under our feet, let alone under God's feet. And in Luke 11, verse 20, and uh, the, the context here is uh, when Jesus is, you know, sort of he's cast out a demon and uh, the Pharisees here commit the sin against the Holy Spirit and say, look, you, you, you've done this by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan, and, you know, here you get the blasphemy against the Spirit because they knew Jesus was the Son of God, but him having, like, proved who he was, they then say, oh, no, you've done it by the power of the devil, and it's a complete nonsense, but that's the context. But just look at what Jesus says here. He says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, let's, let's, let's there, all right, let's ask ourselves, 
What, for instance, goes on when a demon is cast out of somebody? Because that's an aspect of spiritual warfare. Sometimes people have demons inside them and you've got to cast them out. That's okay, no big deal. What exactly is happening there? And it's so easy that Christians make such a big deal of it, all right? When Jesus cast demons out, it was by the finger of God. Now, picture in your hand, put a matchbox in your hand. There's a demon. What is casting demons out? It's when the Lord comes along with his finger and he flicks the matchbox across the room. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the finger of God. And God deals with demons and with Satan by flicking them about with his finger. Not some great wrestling match where Satan's almost on a par with God. When Satan gets in God's way, all right, when God's finished turning it round so that Satan ends up doing God's will, all right, then God just flicks him out of the way. That's the power of God over Satan. And that is the power that you and I have over Satan as well. Because we're one with Jesus. Not because of our own power strength, but that's the authority, the delegated authority that we have. At the end of the day, we can flick Satan out of the way. We can flick demons out of people if they're inhabiting them and if the Lord is leading us to deal with them and cast them out. It's a flick job. <laughs> that is the power that we have. Next time, however, tragedy. And we're going to have a look at the sin of Achan. And uh, there's, there's much for us to, to learn about that and there's much for us to be warned about as well. Boom, boom, the end. <laughs>